0: I Lived with a Killer is part of the Real Crime Collection in the Reels Files on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Be sure to subscribe to get new episodes each Thursday. Then go to Reels.com to find chilling programs like this when you watch TV. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com for the real crime series and specials you'll find only on Reels Channel.
1: Dale Hausner has been gunning down random people on the streets of Phoenix.
2: It was frightening. I had lived in Phoenix for a long time, and nothing like this had ever happened.
1: No one, not even his brother, suspects he's the mysterious shooter. It's so creepy that here the
3: person that is actually doing it is so under the radar.
1: But as police close in on the killer...
2: became obvious to all these cops that these guys were hunting
4: due to the seriousness of this investigation detectives obtained an emergency search warrant
1: randy uncovers the terrible truth about the brother he trusted
3: i had the proof that he's a sick individual and that he did horrible things and from that moment on he knew that his world of lies wouldn't work anymore
1: For more than a year in the mid-2000s, Dale Hausner keeps the city of Phoenix, Arizona gripped in fear. Over 14 long months, residents are randomly gunned down in a rash of deadly nighttime shootings that leave dozens of people injured or dead. Dale's brother Randy lives through the terrifying era with no idea his brother is responsible.
3: I used to read about people being married to a horrible killer and not finding out until after they got arrested. I'd be like, how could you not know? Well, it's easy not to know if they're a psychopath.
1: On June 29, 2005, the Phoenix suburb of Tullison experiences a cluster of strange shootings. Camille Kimball, author. A sudden shot
2: the family in late June of 2005 got the munchies at night they went through the drive-thru at a fast-food restaurant and as they went through the drive-thru window and exited with their food their headlights caught something on the sidewalk and they looked closer and it was a body
4: Cliff Jewel retired homicide detective Phoenix Police Department David Estrada was standing on the corner and he was hitchhiking to California and he was trying to collect money and he was shot while standing on the side of the road.
2: There was some loose change on his body and so the authorities immediately thought this isn't a robbery, they would have taken the money. It was a puzzling thing to find this body here with no immediate clue as to why. Now the same night, another fast food restaurant found that its windows had been shot up and in fact, in a children's play area, which is a frightening thing to experience as well. And in the morning, there was a horse who was found to have died with five bullets in her. This was a huge night for Tiny Little Tallison, which is a very small community. It was a confusing spree and all very close together. They were connected geographically, but there was no rhyme or reason to it.
1: 12 miles away, in the city of Phoenix, Dale Hausner lives what seems like a quiet life, working with his brother Randy at the Phoenix International Airport.
3: I ended up getting a job at Sky Harbor Airport on a maintenance crew, and Dale wanted a job too, so we ended up working with the city of Phoenix on this same crew.
1: Randy and Dale have been close since they were children.
3: We were a family of five, but Dale was the youngest, I was the second to the youngest. So, you know, we grew up very close. We did a lot of playing, a lot of clowning around together as kids.
1: The siblings share an unusual upbringing.
3: We actually lived in an abandoned school. It's a very unique situation. The Cartwright School District let us live at this school called Powell School that was closed down. And the agreement was, we live there, we keep the grounds up, my dad was a groundskeeper there. And in return, we we got to live there. We'd go through each classroom, and in one, we had a ping pong table. We got to be really good at ping pong. And another room was just abandoned books. And so we started out by playing a teacher-student game. I had the idea of tutoring ahead of time. I told Dale, I said, why don't you let me teach you what you're going to learn next year? So by tutoring him, we not only impressed
1: the teachers, but it also made him an honor roll student. The brothers also make use of the athletic equipment their makeshift home has to offer.
3: We like to do a lot of backyard boxing. So in one of the classrooms, we had a punching bag. We'd practice our boxing and play the Rocky music and hit the
1: bag. One day, Randy gets a glimpse of an odd training session in the gym. I saw Dale in there. He was by
3: himself and I walked in and he was talking to the bag like, no, no, I don't want any problems, and then bam, he would lash out and hit the bag. Very fast and sharp. He'd practice like he'd put his hands up. No, 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 I don't want any. And then he'd throw a punch. And I didn't really know what was going on. Well, later on he came home and he said, it happened today, it happened. I said, what? He said, dude, it was that kid that was picking on me today. I said, well, what happened? He says, well, just like I've been practicing on the punching bag. When he approached me to bully me, I said, no, no, I don't want any problem. And I threw a punch. And this bully got hit. And he was bleeding and he took off running. And I said, well, good. You stood up for yourself and I don't think he's going to bother you anymore. He says, yeah, I'm so glad.
1: But the incident leaves Dale with more than just pride that he has chased off his bully. He says, there's one other thing. I'm like, what? He says, when my hand hit his face
3: and I saw the blood, it felt good. And I, I kind of I got goosebumps. He said, it kind of creeped me out. I told him, you don't have to get joy out of it. You stood up for yourself and that's the good thing. But don't rejoice in the fact,
1: you know... The brothers stay close as they grow, continuing their shared love of boxing. Eventually, spending time together at home becomes spending time together at work.
3: Working with a relative is a two-edged sword. It can be good on one hand, can be kind of annoying on the
1: other. By December 2005, news of the shootings has begun to spread around the airport's lunchroom. Randy has no idea that his brother Dale is responsible, but he does become concerned about his brother's spotty attendance at work. It was brought to my attention that he was
3: actually using drugs. Now, me being a very anti-drug person, he did not want me to know that and was very embarrassed about it. The drug of his choice was meth, a horrible drug that destroys lives, and I wanted to stop that as soon as possible. The longer you're in it, the worse it is. So I tried the best I could to be an influence and to get him off of that as soon as possible.
1: But Dale's drug problems stem from a tragic loss a decade earlier while living in Texas. Dale and his wife at the time
3: had two young kids. They were driving, Uh, they lost control of the wheel. It hit one rail and then hit another, and this was late at night, and it went into a river. They swam to the surface, but the kids were still in the car seat and buckled in. It was horrific to see my brother deal with a situation like that. I know it messed with him mentally. So I felt like it's possible, that not to justify drug use, but it's possible that he was using that as a way to escape the past and the things that happened with his kids.
1: Losing his two young sons leaves Dale with overwhelming grief. After a divorce, he returns home to Phoenix to start a new life. But by 2005, high on crystal meth, he's spending nights stalking the greater Phoenix area. On December 29th, 2005, a new rash of shootings takes place.
2: Timmy Tordai was working late. He got off the bus. He started walking to his residence and... He felt an odd sensation and he thought he was having a heart attack. And then he felt the blood trickle and he slowly sank to the ground and he realized, I've been shot. He was able to make his way to his residence, which was just a short few steps further, and 911 was called.
1: Phoenix homicide detective Cliff Jewell responds to the scene. I was called out on December
4: 29th for a multiple shooting in the downtown area. While searching for possible suspects, two additional victims were found. Both of them were deceased. Within blocks of where Mr. Tordai was shot. I was informed by another patrol precinct that East Phoenix had experienced a rash of random shootings, where a female was shot four miles away.
2: A young woman named Clarissa Rowley was shot along Van Buren. When she saw the car do a U-turn and face her, she saw the barrel of the gun come out of the window. She actually put her hands up to shield her face.
4: She was also pregnant at the time and miscarried because of the shooting.
1: Similar to the night of June 29th, 2005, the shootings aren't limited to people.
4: About a mile away from that shooting location, two dogs in a backyard were, were shot. And about a half mile down the same street, a third dog was shot.
2: December 29th was a very busy night for crime. It also turned out that in addition to all these wounded and dead people and animals, buildings had been shot chiropractor's office had been shot, a bartending school had been shot, and a car had been shot up. So it was a very puzzling and violent night.
1: So far, police have been unsure whether or not all the random shootings are connected. But all that changes when Detective Jewell makes an important discovery. In 2005, Dale Hausner begins a rash of nighttime shootings across the greater Phoenix area that terrifies citizens and confounds police. Similar to the opening scenes of the 2012 Tom Cruise film Jack Reacher, the victims are innocent passers by with no obvious connection. Dale's brother Randy is oblivious to his brother's sinister nocturnal activities but he does notice a shift in his brother that has him worried. I was concerned about Dale because he
3: seemed to be depressed. Something wasn't right. Couldn't put my finger on it, but he just distanced
1: himself. The random nature of the shootings keeps police guessing.
4: Since there were shootings that involved different weapons, I didn't know whether or not they were all related. However, a close proximity to where all these shootings occurred the time of day led me to believe that maybe they had a couple of weapons in the car.
1: But a shell casing found at the scene of Timmy Torday's December 29th murder leads Detective Jewell to an important discovery. After talking to the
4: detective from Tollison Police Department, it became apparent to both of us that these shootings may be linked by M.O. and by ballistics. At that point, I advised my supervisors that we have a multi-jurisdictional serial shooting going on
1: and that we needed to uh, devote some manpower to it. With no leads to help them catch the shooter or predict when his next deadly spree will occur, police decide to warn the public.
4: A press conference was held on January 24th, 2006, with Tollison Police Department, Phoenix Police Department, so that we could make the public aware that now we have a second serial shooting situation going on and they need to be way more vigilant than they had been. We wanted to make it clear to the public these shootings were all occurring during a specific time frame, somewhere between 10 o'clock at night and three o'clock in the morning and we wanted the public to know that walking by yourself late at night was not the thing to be doing so we gave those specific uh, directions to the public as well as asking for any information
1: with confirmation of a serial shooter threatening the city Phoenix residents go on high alert
3: everyone was afraid that there was a serial shooter loose. People were afraid to pump gas at night. They stopped
4: going out. There was a lot of fear in the valley. You could drive down a normally busy street at midnight and see no one.
2: Everyone changed their habits. If you walked your dog at night, for instance, you you stopped doing that. You made sure you walked your dog only in the daytime. It was frightening. And, you know, I had lived in Phoenix for a long time, and nothing like this had ever happened And I remembered that serial killers can often take a very long time to catch. BTK took 30 years. They never have caught the Zodiac killer. I thought, I can't live like this for 30 more years. And I really seriously started thinking about moving. And I'm certain I wasn't the only person who thought like that.
1: As talk of the serial shooter takes over the city... Dale Hausner joins in on the conversation during his day job at the Phoenix airport.
3: It was a big topic everybody was talking about, whether it be in your break room, at lunch, the water cooler. Everyone, it was a buzz. It was on the
4: nightly news almost every night.
1: Police are frustrated by the difficult nature
4: of the case. One of the most difficult part of the investigations was the fact that there was nothing that was easily traceable. All of the victims were of different races, ages, sexes, but every victim was alone and it was late at night where there is very little traffic or other people around.
1: But in early 2006, they catch a break. Clarissa Rowley, one of the victims from the December 29 shooting, has survived and she has information to share.
4: When I spoke to the female victim who survived, she provided a physical description of the car that the suspect was driving. And I had the surveillance video from December 29th, which shows the only car during that time frame that my victims were shot. And it appears to be fairly close to her description. This young lady also was able to describe the driver of the car. She described him as a scruffy-looking white male. At that point now, I had at least a race, the fact that it was
1: male. But just as authorities finally have a lead to follow, the shootings inexplicably stop. Frightened residents hope the worst has passed.
2: When there's a wall in the crime spree, everyone wants to think, it's over. It's over. People still had altered their routines, they were still wary, but maybe the conversations died down a little bit because we hadn't heard anything new for a while.
4: In investigations like this, where you have a lull, so to speak, um, you begin to wonder what is causing that. Did the suspect get arrested, are they in jail, did they just quit? It is almost impossible for a serial killer to just quit what they're doing. All those things run through your mind as to what happened to the suspect. Why did this stop and thankfully stop, but why did it stop? Because it's going to make it much more difficult to find them.
1: Months pass without incident because Dale is busy pursuing a new career in petty crime, shoplifting for resale.
2: Dale is a very busy person, and one of the things that he had going was a... Thriving shoplifting business, Dale met a man named Sam Dietman. Sam was quite a good shoplifter, and the two of them really hit it off. Sam didn't have a car, didn't drive, but Dale did, and he was very happy to drive Sam wherever he wanted to go, so they hung out a lot.
1: By spring of 2006, Dale Hausner and Sam Dietman are roommates, running a petty theft ring out of their shared apartment. But as Dale and Sam's illegal enterprise grows... Another serial killer known as the baseline killer is hunting women on the streets of Phoenix.
3: There were dual serial killers going around, and it was a scary situation.
4: The other serial case that was going on at the same time involved a suspect who was completely different in M.O., doing things completely differently and targeting completely different people. So I knew that it wasn't related.
1: Dale, who loves seeing his crimes reported in the media, doesn't like sharing the spotlight. After the
4: five months where there are no shootings, my opinion is that they started up again because they were competing for news attention uh, with the other serial case that was going on.
1: Dale wants to reclaim his place as the number one killer in Phoenix, but this time he'll have an accomplice.
0: If you like what you're hearing, check out the Real Crime TV series on Reel's channel. You'll find true stories of capital offenders brought to justice, like Chris Watts, the Colorado Killer Dad, the Turpins, whose children grew up in a real-life house of horrors, and a new report on the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. Reels is your go to for updates on unsolved murders and insights on the minds of serial killers. Find Reels on your TV at Reels.com. That's R E E L Z.com. Then check the top of the screen to find Reels in your area.
1: Phoenix, Arizona resident Dale Hausner is leading a seemingly quiet life, working as a custodian at the Phoenix International Airport. In 2005, he holds the city hostage when he begins gunning down random pedestrians at night. Like the other residents of Phoenix, Dale's brother Randy lives in fear. He has no idea how close the killer really is.
3: It was scary. I was nervous about going out late, about taking walks in a park or anything like that.
1: For several months in 2006, Dale puts down his weapons in favor of running a shoplifting ring with his roommate, Sam Dietman. But when another Phoenix serial killer begins to steal Dale's media thunder, he decides it's time to reclaim his place as the city's number one killer. On May 2nd, 2006, Dale takes his roommate on a joyride.
2: Dale picked him up and he was making jokes, being genial Dale. And he said, hey, I'm going to show you something. And he pulled up to a young man who was walking along on the sidewalk. He rolled down the passenger window, reached across Sam, and shot the young man on the sidewalk. He laughed as he drove away and said to Sam, now it's your turn. Sam was actually somewhat fearful in that moment because Dale had the gun, he was in the car. He knew he was now a witness to a crime, a very bad crime that Dale had just done. So in that moment, Sam made the choice that he really had no other option but to go along with it. Dale is laughing and driving around, and they see a figure walking in the distance. And Dale hands the gun to Sam and he went ahead and shot. The person he shot was a young woman, Claudia Gutierrez Cruz.
1: Claudia later succumbs to her injuries in the hospital and authorities turned to the public once again, this time with an incentive.
2: Throughout May 2006, the shootings continued and seemed to speed up, there were more, and the terror was getting unbearable in this city, and we finally got our very angry mayor announcing that there was a $100,000 reward now for anyone who could help find the perpetrators of these crimes.
3: The mayor puts out a reward. The police are looking everywhere. I'm thinking, I just hope they catch whoever's doing it. This is a scary situation for me, for my family, for my friends. We're all in the same boat. The mayor put together a community meeting where people could get together and voice their concerns. And ironically, I found out that Dale actually attended the meeting about the serial shooter.
2: I think it's part of the titillation for a criminal to go to something like a community meeting about his own crimes. He wants to hear the cops talking about it. He wants to hear how he's smarter than they are, that they haven't figured out that he's standing right there. And also part of it, it gives him joy and glee to hear the fear in the people's voices, the people who are there to try to save their families. He wants to hear that. That's why he commits the crime in the first place, because he loves that. So if he goes to a room full of people expressing their fear, he feels very powerful.
1: Throughout the spring of 2006, the drug-fueled Dale continues to wreak havoc on the streets of Phoenix. And like the title character in the 1990 film, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, he convinces his friend to join him in his spree.
4: During the May and June 2006 time frame, multiple people were shot. Uh, one night in particular, three people were shot. With shotguns. Another night, two Walmart stores were set ablaze and another individual was shot critically wounded.
1: Police obtain more surveillance footage, this time from one of the Walmart stores. Concerned for his family, Randy decides to check in on his parents.
3: So, with all this fear going around, I remember stopping off at my parents' house. To talk to my mom and it was late and I was coming out and I happened to be talking to Dale on the other end of my cell phone. As I'm walking towards my car, I say, oh, this is weird. Dale says, what? I says, some car's kind of slowing down out here. And he says, you watch out. It could be that crazy person going around shooting people. And I'm like, oh, relax. He says, no, there's somebody. I said, the car drove away. He says, oh, okay. You never know. And it's like in retrospect to that, it is so creepy that here the person that is actually doing it is so under the radar that here he is adamantly saying, watch out, there's somebody out.
1: You shouldn't be out, you know. But Dale's days of flying under the radar are numbered. When they examine the surveillance video from the Walmart fire, the police get a clear image of their killer and discover something else.
2: From the moment they saw the two men on the Walmart videotapes, cops believed they were two perpetrators of these crimes.
1: And when their pleas to the public finally pay off, a tip comes in that blows the case wide open. By the summer of 2006, Dale Hausner's year-long shooting spree across the city of Phoenix, Arizona... Leaves five people dead and another 18 wounded. Joined by his roommate Sam Dietman, Hausner continues to prowl the city streets at night. Dale's brother Randy notices a change in his younger sibling and confronts him. I remember calling him and I said, Something's
3: not right with you. Be honest with me. Uh, Is something going on? Are you back on drugs? Are you doing stuff? I'm not. No, it's fine. It's all okay. I'm
1: just a little depressed. With nothing to indicate that Dale is responsible for the killings that have plagued the city, Randy takes his brother's explanation on faith. In July 2006, a break comes in the case when police receive a tip from a man named Ron Horton... Horton tells police about a disturbing conversation he had with his friend Sammy.
2: They were in a bar together, and Sam said, have you ever killed a man? And Ron just, like, was a throwaway line. He thought, he's just being weird. And he goes, well, I have.
4: We finally received a good tip from Ron Horton. He advised that he has a friend named Sammy, and that Sammy may be involved in these shootings.
2: One of the reasons police were very interested in what Ron Horton had to say was he repeated a detail that was not known to the public. He said that Sammy had told him that he used a shotgun because you couldn't trace it and it was a 410. Now that was a detail nobody knew but the actual killers and the victims. So they were very interested in Ron's information and it did make Sam look like maybe the guy they were hunting for.
4: He was subsequently shown a surveillance video from the walmart fires and he identified sammy from that surveillance video now we had a suspect
1: police request that ron help them set a trap for their killers but ron is hesitant
2: ron horton was working with the police he had a very conflicted conscience about it because he wasn't sure that sammy was guilty of anything but Drunken and blather, and he didn't want anyone else to get hurt, but he didn't want to snitch on somebody, get somebody in trouble that wasn't guilty of anything.
1: On the night of Sunday, July 30th, Sam and Dale prepare to once again hit the streets of Phoenix looking for victims. That same night, police asked Ron Horton to set up a meeting with Sam, hoping to draw out the other suspects seen on the surveillance video.
2: Police asked Ron to draw Sammy out so that they could follow him and, in particular, get the other guy out, hopefully. And Ron, being conflicted, kind of made a half-hearted effort at it. Sam wasn't really responding, and Ron thought this was unusual because Sammy usually talks up a storm.
1: But the normally sociable Sam is too preoccupied to take the bait.
2: And so finally... Ron told Sam via text, well, you're obviously busy. Just give me a call tomorrow.
1: The next morning, Ron Horton wakes to terrible news. 22-year-old Robin Blasnick had been killed the night before. Another victim of the serial shooter.
4: Robin Blasnick was on her way to see her boyfriend. She was walking down the sidewalk once she was shot and killed with a shotgun blast.
2: Ron felt horrible. He felt he now had blood on his hands and he felt that reluctant conversation that he had with Sam where he could not draw him out, could not get an immediate response, was exactly during the time period that Robin was being hunted and in fact killed. And it motivated Ron. From that moment on, Ron was all in. He really felt that sammy was the guy and he was gonna do his part to bring him in and stop these killings
1: the day after robin Blaznik's shooting ron horton contacts sam deepman once again
2: ron was finally able to make a date with sam they were to meet at a bar called the stardust and he said oh can you get yourself a ride to the bar because police very much wanted the other man in the Walmart video to show up. So they made sure that Ron did not offer him a ride.
1: The plan works. When Dale dropped Sam off at the bar, police set up a tail. Dale brought Sam to
4: the bar, left Sam, then he went to the mall. While he was at the mall, that's when the GPS tracker went on the car. Dale wow. housed him picked up Sam and they began to drive around in the East Phoenix area, which uh, caused a lot of concern with the surveillance teams.
2: And they see them take the duffel bag and put it in the car, and they can actually see that it's put uh, sort of between the seats, where it's ready to hand, which makes them very, very nervous about what's going to happen next. This car was driving slowly up to pedestrians, and sometimes doing a U-turn around pedestrians and looping in and out of neighborhoods where it clearly had no business. And every time another car came along, the car would speed away from the pedestrian. And it became obvious to all these cops that these guys were hunting. They were trying to find a target.
1: Rain foils their plans, and Dale and Sam head home without claiming another victim.
4: Due to the seriousness of this investigation, detectives obtained an emergency electronic search warrant for Hausner's
1: apartment. The following day, police secretly install a listening device in Dale and Sam's apartment.
2: The police listened to everything Dale and Sam said to each other inside that apartment. And, boy, did they get an earful. Sam and Dale were directly talking about the crimes. They were taking great fun from the misery of the victims and their most recent victim was Robin Blaznik so they were saying things oh her name is really Robin Blastneck.
4: additionally Sam Deepman was observed leaving the apartment with a bag of trash he threw the bag of trash in a garbage dumpster which the police department subsequently recovered located inside that garbage bag was a map of the metropolitan area of Phoenix with red and blue dots at the same locations as the shootings. Also found inside that garbage bag was a soda can, and inside the soda can was a 410 shotgun shell.
2: Cops look at it, and there's sort of a feeling of reverence because they all feel they're looking at the very shell that probably ended Robin's life just a few days ago.
4: Not only did we now identify the suspects, but they provided us with physical evidence leaking them to the crimes that had occurred throughout the valley.
1: On August 3rd, 2006, police arrest Sam outside his apartment. They then break down the door and arrest Dale. When news of the arrest reaches Dale's family, they're shocked.
3: I hear a knock on my back door and I heard the voice, it's your mother. And I'm like, oh no only reason my mom would be up that early and to knock on my door when it's pitch dark. One thing went through my mind. My dad had a heart attack. And so I opened the door and she says, you're not going to like this. And I'm like, oh, no. And my mom says, Dale has been arrested. They believe he's the serial shooter. And we just stood there looking at each other, shaking. And I said, it can't be true. The emotions at the time that ran through my mind was confusion, uh, fear, apprehension, disbelief. It all went through my brain. I, I, the first thing I did was hop in my car and drive to the police station. I, I found the nearest police station, drove to it, and said, is it true, is it true? And while I'm at the police station waiting to speak to somebody, on comes the news of Dale being arrested, and everybody in the whole place is cheering and clapping. And I'm sitting there with my jaw hanging open like, this can't be happening.
4: I think initially after the arrests, the public certainly breathed a sigh of relief. We were roundly applauded by uh, the press and the public for the amount of investigative work that went into to solving this case. At one point, we had almost 350 officers and detectives working this case. And uh, I think the public appreciated it, and they knew that we worked hard to protect them.
1: But as news of the arrest spreads, beleaguered Phoenix residents take out their frustration about the long ordeal on the entire Hausner family. So,
3: right after Dale got arrested, he started getting vandalized. There was a trash can lit on fire, slammed against my door late at night. My car was vandalized. I actually stayed with a friend for several weeks before I went back to my previous place. Things were just chaotic in the valley.
1: In police custody, it's not long before Sam and Dale turn on each other.
2: They worked on Dale first to try to get a confession out of Dale, but Dale was relaxed, he was charming, he was taunting at times and couldn't understand why he was there, but it seemed like a game to him and he he never cracked at all.
4: You guys have never been together doing anything violent together. No, 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 no way.
2: No. So they talk to Sam, and they say, well, do you know why you're here? And Sam said, the serial shooter case? And went on to say, that's us, it's me and my roommate. Sam didn't want to go to trial. He wanted it to be over.
1: But the Phoenix serial shooter isn't about to go down without a fight. In the wake of Sam's confession, Dale quickly goes on the offensive. I did not shoot anybody or kill anybody. After terrorizing his city as the Phoenix serial shooter for over a year, Dale Hausner is finally apprehended. But when his partner in crime, Sam Dietman, confesses to police, Dale begins a campaign to convince the public and his beleaguered family of his innocence. I got to do a video conference call, and
3: he looked me straight in the camera, and he swore to me. He says, look, I swear to you I'm innocent. It was my roommate, Sam. He was taking my car out. I swear to you, I am innocent. Stand by me. Trust me. When more information comes out, you'll know I'm innocent. And I look back in the past when Dale had been caught at doing something I viewed was wrong, like the drugs or whatever. He never denied it. So there's no reason for me to really doubt. Usually if he did something, he'd fess up and say, yeah, I messed up, I did this, I did that. But at this time, he's swearing to me that he's innocent and uh, tell, asking me to stand by him. So as a family, we all talked about it, and we all decided, you know, hey, innocent till proven guilty. He's, he's promised us, yeah, he had some issues here and there, nothing along the lines of anything horrendous like this so let's see what's going to happen. Let's stand by him and let's... uh, We need more
1: information. As much information we can get, we want. Details provided by Sam help prosecutors tie all of the random shootings together.
4: After the interviews where Sam Diepman detailed uh, some of the shootings and implicated Dale Hausner in my series of shootings, I was elated when... Detective serving the search warrant on Dale Hausner's car found seven shell casings, 22 caliber. All of those shell casings matched all of my shootings.
1: Armed with both physical evidence and damning recordings from Dale and Sam's apartment, prosecutors bring Dale to trial in September 2008. Dale's family stands by him
2: watching the Hausner family day after day after day throughout several months of a trial, it seemed like they had a lot of faith in Dale. He certainly had a lot of support from them. They they showed up every day. They sat together. They showed a lot of solidarity. And it seemed like they believed in his innocence.
1: But towards the end of the trial, Randy makes a shocking discovery about the brother he trusted. During these times that Dale was swearing to
3: me his innocence asking me to stand by him. I went through a storeroom that he had had to clean it out. And I'm going through it, and I found a notebook, a red notebook, that ended up being a diary that he wrote that he thought no one would ever see. And as I started reading this diary, it was so horrific that instantly, before I was half done with it, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt he was guilty, He actually wrote in that diary that, as a little kid, we're talking very early grade school, that he had snuck rat poisoning in and put it in somebody's drink and made them very sick. There were things in that diary I read that would make a billy goat puke, that were totally repulsive, made me upset to my stomach. Talking about killing birds, stripping the skin off of them, leaving them out in the sun to die, talking about driving by and taking a bat and hitting an innocent person in the head with it as he drives by in a car. Just horrific things. Um, When I read that, I knew that this is a psychopath. In retrospect, I really learned the difference between a psychopath and, say, like, a horrible person. Because a a horrible person, they come up to you and they talk to you... ...and within 30 seconds to a minute, you know, this is no good. I want nothing to do with this person. You know, you pick up on them pretty quick. Psychopaths, on the other hand, they fly under the radar. You don't know that they're a psychopath. They're very hidden.
1: Following his horrific discovery, Randy visits his brother in prison.
3: So I had the proof. I had a diary that proved, beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's a sick individual, and that he did horrible things. And I confronted him with it. And I told him, no more telling me. No more telling me that you're innocent. No more telling me that you didn't do this. This diary proves that you're sick, you're messed up, you did wrong. And from that moment on, he knew that his world of lies wouldn't work anymore.
2: In the end, Dale was convicted of six murders, And dozens and dozens of other charges, well over 70, involving shooting the dogs, shooting horses, shooting buildings, setting buildings on fire, and ultimately he was sentenced to death.
3: When Dale was sentenced to death, my first thought was, that's the punishment that fits the crime. Some people were kind of hard on me, thinking that, well, that's your brother, that's your brother, but you know what? That was such a heinous crime. And... I even talked to Dale about it. I told him, you need to accept the verdict, and he did. He did accept it. He
1: didn't fight it. Dale Hausner never makes it to the day of his execution, instead choosing to take his own life with an overdose of sleeping pills in his cell.
3: When I first found out he took his life in jail, I was a bit shocked. Uh, But then, as sad as this sounds, there was some relief that came with it. I know that that's a relative of mine. I know that we grew up together. But there was actually some relief, like it's over, no more. The chapter is closed. And I actually felt like it's time to
1: move on. Randy moves forward by making peace with his brother's victims and their families.
3: After Dale had died, I actually got to sit down and meet some of the victims. And my heart went out to them to hear their story. It was so heart-wrenching on one end, but to be able to look them in the eyes and say, you know what, I'm so sorry that happened to you, and if there's anything I can do, I'm here for you. And to see it back in return, like, they knew that, yeah, you know, you may be related, that doesn't mean anything. I even had somebody one time pull me aside and say, I've had relatives who've done bad things too i know what you're going through
1: randy now chooses to concentrate on the light instead of the dark by producing stand up comedy shows that focus on clean comedy
3: i believe that by bringing joy by bringing laughter to people that that's my way of counteracting the bad that's out there whether it's the bad that came from my brother, whether it be other people, I just believe in life. We're meant to do the best you can with what you have. And my way of giving back, my way of counteracting horrible things that happen, is just bringing that joy, that laughter to
0: people. Just my way of giving back, of turning things around. I Lived with a Killer comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. To find more original programs like this when you watch TV, go to Reels.com. That's reel ccom to find us on your system. You'll also find extras from the TV version of I Lived with a Killer, including tell-all interviews with family members and crime scene photos. You'll get only on Reels Channel.